we're in Mark chapter 10. I'm saying that today, and I plan to say that again one more time next week, and I think that will finish off this chapter. But we're in Mark 10, 32 to 45. And I've said this each time we've come to one of these predictions of Jesus' death and resurrection, but there are three of them. And Mark laid them out in detail and in succession. So we had one in Mark 8, one in Mark 9, one in Mark 10. And one of my commentaries said that Mark 8 through 10 is the most sustained and specific teaching on discipleship in the New Testament. And there's a pattern here. So in each chapter, there are three things. There is a passion prediction describing the Lord's death and resurrection. And by the way, every time he says he's going to die, he also says he's going to rise again every time verse or the second one there is that there's a foolish response so he he says i'm going to die and i'm going to rise again and then it seems to just fly over their head because they have something else they want to talk about and then the third thing that you'll see each time is that then he teaches his disciples a lesson on discipleship teaching them what service is what true spiritual greatness is so a passion prediction a foolish response and a lesson on discipleship each time And you're going to see that again in our passage today. I'm going to read this section for us. I would invite you to stand. I'm going to read Mark 10, and I'm going to begin in verse 32 and read to verse 45. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we can. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, this is your word. And you have given it to us for our reproof for our correction, for our instruction in righteousness, for teaching. And we ask that you would accomplish your purposes with your word in our hearts today. We thank you that we have it readily available in our language, that we can study it together in this place, 
Thank you for each person here, each family represented, for those working with the children right now. We pray that you would be honored, that you would receive the glory in this church body today. I ask for your help, that I would be accurate with your word, that I would bring out what you want said, and that we would respond, that we would obey what you show us from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'd like to start by offering you a little bit of an outline for this section. Very basic, but just so that we know what's happening. We have, first, Jesus' announcement of his death and resurrection. This is the third time that he has announced his death and resurrection. Second, James and John, two of his 12 disciples, who are brothers, come and they request greatness. We want to be great. And then, three, we have Jesus' example of greatness. So the first three verses, verses 32 to 34, Jesus makes his third announcement of his death and resurrection. And then James and John come, and they request that they want to be the greatest. They want the positions of greatness, verses 35 to 40. And then verses 41 to 45, Jesus shows them, tells them, explains to them, redefines for them what greatness is. All this comes down to one point. I was trying to simplify it, trying to figure out what is the best way that I can come up with to express this passage, and that is that Jesus came to serve and to give, and we should follow his example. He calls us to follow his example. He came to serve and to give, and when we get to that last verse, verse 45, we're going to see to serve and to give. Right now, though, let's go back to verse 32, and it says, now they were on the road, that's Jesus and his 12 disciples, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. So in normal Mark fashion, he just sets the scene and throws it out there quickly, these short little sentences. It says they were going up to Jerusalem, and we've said this before. You're probably familiar with the fact that Jerusalem is elevated. So whether you're coming north, south, east, west, if you're coming to Jerusalem, you're coming up. It's about 2,500 feet above sea level. So they are going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was going before them. That's another important little preposition there. He's going ahead of them. When it says he's going before them, he's, he's leading out in front, not walking with his disciples as it seems that his custom was, but rather he's out front by himself. He's there alone. The parallel passage, Luke 9, says that his face was set. It's referring to a passage in Isaiah that his face is like flint. He is determined to go. And I believe his determination that has him out in front by himself is why we have the statement, they were amazed. Or your translation may say they were astonished, that they were surprised. Why are they surprised? Why are they amazed? Because he's determined to go to Jerusalem. Well, so what? Lots of people are going to Jerusalem. It's the Passover. Everybody's going up to Jerusalem. Everybody who can. Well, as we compare this to the Gospel of John, for example, he has recently raised Lazarus from the dead and the religious leaders want to kill him for it. And for a time, he avoided the area around Jerusalem because it wasn't his time yet, but this is his time and he is headed to Jerusalem and they're thinking, why? They're threatening to kill you there. Why would you go there? He knows that this is his time. He knows that this is his father's plan and he is resolute. He is determined to go. And then we have the curious little statement that's not explained. As as they followed they were afraid. And we think, well, why, is, why were the disciples afraid? It's, it's even more complicated than that because the syntax in Greek, it's a different group. It's not talking about the 12 anymore. And Mark just throws that in there. 
Others in the crowd were afraid. Well, who were they and why are they afraid? I don't know exactly. There were lots of people who were making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover, and it could be that these were others beyond the 12 who were his followers who had been with him, may have heard his other predictions. Some people may have thought, if this is the Messiah, then he's about to go overthrow Rome. There's fighting involved. That They may have been afraid from that. I don't know. But Mark continues to describe emotions, and he says that the, the 12 were amazed, and this other group were afraid. And then we come to this third prediction of Jesus' death. And to do that, I'd like to review just a little bit. Those of you who were here, several weeks ago, we dealt with this same idea in chapter 8 and then in chapter 9. So this is the passage from 831. And he began to teach them, his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So we got four verbs, four descriptions there of what's going to happen to him. That's 831. A chapter later, 931. We read this. For he taught his disciples and said to them, the Son of Man is being betrayed, that's a new idea, into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. Again, four ideas. Succinct. But now we get a lot more detail. We, we move on to our passage today, and here we read Mark 10, 33 and 34 says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and he will rise again. Now we have eight describing words. So not that you need to write this down, but just visually, this is what it looks like in a chart. We have four descriptions in 831, four descriptions in 931, and then we have all kinds of specific stuff when we get to this third time. This isn't something that Mark was writing down because it happened. This is something Jesus is prophesying is going to happen with amazing specificity. That the Son of Man will be mocked and scourged and spit on in addition to we already knew that he was going to be killed and rise again. So let's look more closely at this third statement. We just read it from verses 32 to 34. And starting halfway through 32, it says, then he took the 12. So he's speaking specifically to his disciples. He took them aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Why does he keep doing this? Why is he telling them? Why is he telling us? I think part of it is to set the stage that this is not something that Jesus was just a victim, that things didn't go according to plan A and he ended up dying. It's not that he was a political activist and everything went wrong and he got killed. No. This is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Before anyone or anything was created, this was part of the plan. This was plan A, folks. And I believe part of the reason Mark and the other Gospels are recording these prophecies, this is what's going to happen. The Son of Man, and he's referring to himself that way. That was his favorite way to describe himself. So he talks in the third person about himself here. But he says, the Son of Man will be betrayed. Or your translation may say, delivered. And this is a double deliverance. God the Father is going to deliver him over to, we have the, the scribes, the chief priests, the religious leaders, 
and they in turn will deliver him over to the Gentiles. Why would that be? Because the Jews at that time didn't have the authority to execute anyone. So by giving that information as a prophecy, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be handed over so that they can kill me. And by the way, if I'm being handed over to the Gentiles, they would have understood that's the Romans. How did the Romans execute non-Roman citizens? By crucifixion. So he's telling them how he's going to die. This is new. He hasn't told them until now where he's going to die. He hasn't told them until now, in Mark's gospel anyway, how he's going to die. And he gives all these other descriptions, scourged, spat upon, etc., Now, back in chapter 8, the first time he explained to them, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again, Peter responded and said, no way. Far be it from you. This isn't the way it should happen. You're the Messiah. You're not going to die. That's a bad idea. Just put that out of your head. That's how Peter responded the first time. The second time, when we get to 9, 31, and he tells, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. How do they respond? We read in the next section that they were on the road, and he says, what were, you, what were you arguing about? What were they arguing about? Who would be the greatest? We're not seeing a lot of sensitivity here. We're not seeing a lot of realization. He's talking about death. And the same thing happens here. Verse 35, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Then they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Now I was trying to figure out how to illustrate this, and this is not perfect. But if I were to come home after a doctor's appointment and tell my family, I got bad news today. Doctor doesn't think I'm going to make it. I'm probably going to die within the next few months. And me and my kids start talking about, well, could I have your watch? Could I have your computer? How are we going to divide up your money? It's not quite like that, but that's the same idea. He's just said, I'm going to be spat upon. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be killed. And they say, can we have the best seats? Can we be on the 50-yard line in the kingdom? That's where we want to be. We want the best seats in the house. Not very good timing. And maybe it wasn't that close together in time, but Mark doesn't tell us anything different. It seems like it, it comes pretty close together. And Matthew tells us that their mama came too. If you read Matthew's account, their mother came, and some of this is tradition, some of this is piecing together different gospel accounts to figure out that it seems that James and John's mother was a woman named Salome whom many believe was one of Mary, the mother of Jesus, one of her sisters. So that makes this Jesus' aunt and makes James and John his first cousins. Can we prove that definitively? No, but that seems to be the case. So perhaps they're thinking that, okay, we're going to get the whole family together and, and gang up a little bit and, and try to put forth our cause. And do you notice how they came to him? Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, if you're a parent in the room, and you've ever had one of your kids come up to you and say, I'm going to ask you a question, I want you to say yes. In fact, can you just say yes now? How many of you parents would say, sure, no problem? 
Most likely not. And, and they're asking him for a blank check. Would you just give us one of your checks and, and sign it, and we'll take care of the details. They say, whatever we're going to ask you, we want you to do. And Jesus wisely says, well, what is it? What is it that you're asking me to do? And they say, we want to sit one on your right hand and the other on your left. These are the places of highest honor in the kingdom. And they say, in your glory. That, that's what they mean, the messianic kingdom. They believe he's their, the Messiah. And if we could say anything to their credit at this point, anything positive about what they're doing here, they never doubted that his kingdom was coming and they never doubted that he was the Messiah. They understood that. And they're acting on it. They believe this is about to happen. We just want to be in the best possible place. We want to situate ourselves the best we can. John Phillips said that they wanted the crown without the cross. They want it for Jesus and they want it for them. Verse 38, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And at first reading, if you're not familiar with this, that may sound really strange. I thought we were talking about seats and now we're talking about baptism. We're talking about cups. What is this? Well, these are figures of speech to describe the sufferings that Jesus was going to face. If you think about what you know, if you know anything about the Old Testament, the scriptures, the cup in the Old Testament was representative of one of two things. It was either joy, we read in Psalm 23, famous passage, my cup runs over, that's a good thing, right? Or it means judgment, it means wrath. And that's how it's being used here. That's the way it was used in some of the prophets, describing the wrath of God. And he's saying, there is a cup that I'm going to drink. As we look later in the Gospel of Mark and in Luke, we read about him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's what he's talking about. The cup of God's wrath that was poured out on our sin that he took for us on the cross. So that's the cup. What about baptism? We're not talking about water baptism. Our first step of obedience as followers of Christ is to be baptized, to be identified with him. That's not what we're talking about here. Again, go back to the Old Testament reference, the context that they would have had. Baptism is when something is overwhelming because that's the literal meaning of it, that it, it's something that is submersed, something that is overwhelmed. And that's the idea here. Someone who is being overwhelmed by a calamity. That's what he's talking about. And this blows my mind. He said, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. Bad things are going to happen to me when we get to Jerusalem. And they say, excuse me, just a minute. Could we have really good seats in the kingdom? And he says, are you able to face some of the suffering that I'm going to face? And they say, yep. We're up for it. Now, a few years ago, I read, I think I read two different books on Navy SEALs, some biography kind of stuff. And it's amazing what some of these special ops forces go through as far as their military, military training. And can you imagine that if I had read through that book and I, I finished the last page and I said, I can do that. I can do that right now. My wife is laughing, those of you who can't see. There's no way. And he's just said, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I am going to be baptized with? And they say, sure. We've got this. They had no clue what they were asking. They had no clue what they were answering. Let's just be honest. And we wouldn't have either. Let's 
I'm not down on James and John in particular. I'm just saying, they didn't know. They didn't know what they were saying. I should also clarify, they were going to suffer, but not in the same way. Because what was Jesus going to do? He was going to suffer in our place. The idea of substitutionary atonement. He was taking our place, dying on the cross, paying for our sins. They couldn't do that. Their suffering wouldn't be that. But they would suffer for identifying with him. And that's what he says next. They say, we are able, that's verse 39. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but to those for whom it is prepared. And those of you who know the book of Acts and Revelation and church history, you know James was the first one to die. He was martyred in, in the book of Acts. That's in chapter 12. And John, tradition tells us that he was boiled in oil and survived that. We certainly know from Scripture that he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. So yes, these men did suffer greatly for following Christ. And that's what he says there. Indeed, you will. You will. But what you're asking is not mine to give. This is something that I don't think I can explain well because the whole idea of the Trinity is complicated to explain. I believe the Bible clearly teaches there's a Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. But here it says that Jesus, the Son, is deferring to and submitted to the Father because it is the Father's prerogative to choose who's going to have the greatest positions in the kingdom. As an application here, do you ever pray for things and they don't happen? These people were talking to Jesus, and in that sense, they were praying to God. And he says, no. Now, we know from other places throughout the Bible, New Testament, 1 John, for example, if we are praying according to his will, he hears us. If we are praying something that he wants to happen, that's going to happen. But if we're praying something contrary to his will, you can look at James chapter 4 if you want to on your own. James 4 talks about you're asking amiss, you're asking according to your own desires and lusts. And therefore you're not asking in the will of God and you're not going to get your request. They're asking for something that is not God's will. And he says no. And there are times that for our own good, because remember all things work together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose. If it's for our good, if it would be good for us, and we're praying for it, he's going to give it to us. If it would be bad for us, there are times he's going to say no. And that's okay. Because it is ultimately for our good and his glory. Verse 41. No surprise here. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Why? Because they didn't think of it first. It's probably what it comes down to. They're jealous. There's been jealousy every place we read. We were looking at John and read about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Even that night, they were still arguing about which one's the greatest. I think of Peter in particular, because who got to see when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter? Peter, James, John. Who got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter, James, John. And here they're cutting him out, because James and John are going to get to the big seats in the kingdom. So he especially, I'm sure, was hot and bothered 
at that point. They were greatly displeased, it says. Verse 42, but Jesus called them to himself and said to them, he's going to give them a lesson. Remember the pattern? He announces his death and resurrection. Somebody among his disciples, maybe more than one, says or does something stupid, argues, and now he's going to set them straight. He's going to teach them what service is. He's going to teach them what following him, what discipleship is. Verse 42, but Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. So when he says Gentiles could be translated nations, we're talking about the non-Jewish world. We could say it as unbelievers. So here's a little chart for verse 42. There are parallel ideas here. We have rulers and we have great ones. The rulers lord it over the great ones exercise authority. He's saying these are the same things. What is this? This is, John MacArthur called it, autocratic domineering authority. It is abused authority. It is being mean. It is being overbearing. It's probably the, the best word I could think of to describe it. So this is what the world around you does. The rulers are expected to lord it over. The great ones are expected to exercise their authority. And they're going to do it in a non-loving way, in an unkind way, often. And he continues, verse 43, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever des desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever desires to be the first shall be slave of all. So he says, that's not the way it's supposed to operate in my kingdom. It's not that those in authority are going to crush those under them and use and abuse those under them that's not how it works in the kingdom of god daniel aiken wrote in the world the more important you are the more are the people who serve you in his world the more important you are the more people you serve it's an upside down kingdom that's the way it's designed by God. So verse 34, I have a little chart for you. Same idea, because we have parallel ideas. We have the great and the first, and we have the servant and slave. So let's explore that a little bit. Whoever desires to become great. Great, contrary to the previous verse, doesn't mean to lord it over everybody else. Not to abuse your authority. It means instead that you're going to place yourself under the authority of someone else. Someone put it this way, unlike Gentile rulers who dominate, manipulate, and control, the great among you shall be your minister. Do you know what another way to translate that would be? Your waiter. The one who serves you. He continues, whoever of you desires to be the first, whoever wants to be first among you, let him be, even stronger word, your slave. A slave is one who forfeits his own rights in order to serve any and all others. Continuing that definition, a disciple is to serve others, not his own interests, voluntarily and sacrificially. How do I know? How do I know if I'm being a servant in this biblical sense? How do I know whether I'm being a slave? 
The easiest way we find out whether we are serving in the right way is when somebody treats us like a servant. Because if you're like me, sure I'll serve. I want everybody to know I'm serving. I want to be noticed. I want to have a parking space that says slave of the month. I, I want to be recognized. If that's our attitude, guess what? We're not serving. We're not serving with this attitude that Jesus is talking about. He who would be great, let him be the table waiter. I hope all of you are able to stay for our fellowship meal afterward. But if you were going to go out to a meal, most of us probably don't pick the restaurant we're going to go to based on the server. Now, you may have a favorite server. You may ask for somebody when you go there, if you go there often enough. But usually we pick it based on where it is or what kind of food it has or maybe the price of the menu. I don't hear anybody usually tell me, oh, yeah, we go there because of our server. Probably you don't even remember the person's name after the fact. But that's, he who would be great needs to be willing to serve tables. This is the same word, diakonos. So when we get to Acts and the seven are chosen, what are they going to do? Part of their responsibility is to wait tables. That's the idea. And then we understand somewhat what a slave is. It, don't, don't think American slavery. Don't think of any place in the world where people are still owned. That is wrong. That is, that's not really the idea here. But this is someone who is voluntarily serving in the lowest position possible. This is why we looked at that passage in John earlier of Jesus, who was the greatest of all, everything given into his hand. And what is he doing? He's taking a towel and he is washing the other, his disciples' feet. That's the picture. That's what's going on here. And that leads us to verse 45. Someone called this the clearest statement of the object of Christ's coming found anywhere in the Gospels. If you mark in your Bible... This next verse, 45, should be underlined. In fact, if you put symbols in your Bible, some of you may do that, this is the key verse for Mark. It's taken us months to get here, hasn't it? But we're here. 10.45. This, in some ways, divides Mark's gospel because the first half of his gospel has been showing Jesus' life and service, all the miracles he has done, some of the teaching that he has taught. Why? Because he came not to be served, but to serve. Second part of this gospel there's more of a focus on his teaching, but what are we going to see more than anything else? What's going to show up in these last few chapters is that he came to die. He is the suffering servant. He came to give his life in sacrifice. He came to do what? To give his life a ransom for many. That's our verse. That's where we are. That's why the main point today is Jesus came to serve and to give, and he calls us to follow his example. Here's the verse. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Here we have again his favorite description of himself, the Son of Man. That comes from the book of Daniel, of a prophecy. And that's how he wants to be remembered, if you will. He is the greatest example of a human. He is God. He did not cease to be God. He has always been God. But he came and entered our life. He was Emmanuel, God with us, he came into our world. He became a man. And he lived the perfect life that we could not. 
so that he could die the death that we deserved. Here it says he did not come to be served, but to serve. This is the most common service possible. This is a great paraphrase that I found in reference to Luke 22, parallel passage. Which is greater, the host and his guests or the waiter? And Jesus said, I'm among you as the waiter. That's Jesus' description of himself. He is the servant. He did not come to be served, but to serve. And what else? To give his life a ransom. What is a ransom? A ransom is typically money. It is a price paid to free someone who is a prisoner or a slave. That's what a ransom is. And that's what he came to do, to give his life in exchange for ours. To give his life a ransom to have us released. It's his substitutionary death. He took our place. How were we slaves? We are slaves to sin. We were slaves to sin. If we have come to him for salvation, he's rescued us. He has delivered us from that. How? By paying our ransom. To whom? To God. God's wrath against sin had to be satisfied. And that's what Jesus did. He paid our ransom. He took our place. And you see where it says, for many? Don't let that throw you off. Many in this context means all. Here's a parallel passage. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Good verse, but it continues. Who gave himself a ransom for all. He came to purchase us, all who will come to him, out of the slavery of sin. So here's one more paraphrase of that key verse. The ideal man, that's Jesus, the man for all men, did not come to be waited on, but to wait tables and to live a life of sacrifice. That's our God, that's Jesus. That's what he came to do. Jesus came to serve and to give, and he calls us to follow his example. I'd like to close this morning. You can turn there if you want to. I'm going to read it to you. This is Philippians 2. It'll be familiar to many of you as well. But Philippians 2 fits so well with his own description of why he came, what he came to do. The good news. What is this? The gospel according to Mark. What does gospel mean? It means good news. This is the good news that Jesus came. He died. He rose. And here's Paul's description for us from Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. That's one of our words. And coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What did he do? He humbled himself. He came. He sacrificed himself. But then what happens? Therefore, because of what he has done, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Paul's description of the same thing we're reading. He did not come to serve, 
He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. How is it here? He humbled himself and came and was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And because of his obedience, God has exalted him. So what do we do with this? Well, if there's anyone here or anyone joining us online, if you've never come to him for salvation, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to God except through me. And you come to him and you call on him. And you ask him to forgive your sin and to save you and give you eternal life. And guess what? If you do that, if you put your faith in him, he'll save you. You will have, present tense, eternal life. If you're a believer here, I have only one question to ask you, and that is, are you following him, following his example, serving, giving? Let's bow our heads, please. Father, you are so good and so kind to do for us what we could not do. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you, Jesus, for your obedience, for your death on the cross. Thank you for redeeming our lives from destruction. Thank you for ransoming our souls. You have delivered us from the slavery of sin. You have given us eternal life. Those who were dead in trespasses and sins, you have quickened us. You've made us alive. You have resurrected us and given us spiritual life, have given us eternal life by believing on you. Lord, I pray for anyone who has not accepted your gift of salvation. Please let today be the day. For those of us who are your children, would you continue to teach us what your version of greatness is that we would understand better what it means to serve, what it means to give, what it means to follow you as your disciple. Lord, we know that it is your will for us to become more like you. And just like salvation, that's not something that we can do on our own. So we ask that by your grace, by your kindness, by your mercy, you would continue to make us more like your son. In whose name we pray these things. Amen.